Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll look at the Russian invasion of Ukraine and its possible implications for the U.S. and world economies. Our guest is Richard Sweat, who represented New Hampshire's 2nd Congressional District from 1991 to 1995, and of particular relevance to this conversation, he was the U.S. Ambassador to Denmark, a NATO member, from 1998 to 2001. And then we'll turn our attention back to Washington, where Congress and the Biden administration are still trying to figure out details of full-year funding for fiscal 2022, including additional COVID relief and more aid to Ukraine. Ambassador Sweat, welcome back to Facing the Future. Thank you. It's good to be back. You know, we talk about a number of things on on this program, kind of wide-ranging, but I never thought we'd be discussing uh, a ground war in Europe. No, but here, but here we are. And uh, uh, I thought that, you know, you, 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 we have had several conversations on this program about lots of things having to do with the federal budget and the economy, even somewhat uh, climate change. This is this is kind of unique. And uh, but we wanted to, to bring you back on the show specifically because you have had uh, experience as a, an ambassador to a NATO country, specifically Denmark and mm-hmm. Denmark has uh, joined in with everybody else in the uh, sanctions and, and in providing weapons for Ukraine. Um, about the time you were ambassador, there was another military conflict involving Ukraine going on in Kosovo. And I know they're not parallel situations by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, having had that experience and seeing what's going on, what is your general impression <laughs> Well, you know, first of all, just to give a little more context to my experience with not only Denmark, uh, NATO countries, and um, uh, those particular aspects, but I can also say, you know, I've been to Ukraine on numerous occasions. I was there as an observer during the uh, the Orange Revolution, uh, literally on Independence Square, where you know, all the demonstrations were taking place, but also in the surrounding uh, countryside and communities that were uh, having uh, votes taken at that time. I also was in Ukraine um, 20 years ago uh, to look at the Babiar uh, uh, site that was the worst open air massacre uh, by the Nazis during the Second World War, um, over 350,000 people, um, uh, two-thirds of them uh, Ukrainian Jews, and uh, the others were, you know, Catholics and um, uh, Roma and, and other minority groups that that the Nazis uh, just threw into the pile. Um, I also had business with a, uh, a Danish uh, individual who had a, a farm uh, in Ukraine, that was located about 20 kilometers from Crimea and literally had 
Russian soldiers walking on his property, on his farm uh, in that part of, of Ukraine. Uh, and then lastly, I was there last October for the 80th anniversary of the Babiar um, Memorial. Um, 20 years ago, I was there with my father-in-law, Congressman uh, Tom Lantos, who's one of the world's renowned uh, human rights uh, fighters. Um, he has since passed away, and I was representing the Lantos Foundation last October for the 80th commemoration of that tragic event. And uh, it was jarring to see that the Russian troops had blown up the memorial. I mean, it, it just is what is happening in Ukraine right now, based on what I've seen firsthand, based on what I've heard, uh, you know, before I get back, uh, get to that, I'll, I'll go back to when I was ambassador to Denmark. The one thing that I always thought was very interesting about the discussions we had in the NATO uh, communities, when we had numerous uh, meetings in Stuttgart and, and various other places, but there was always this sort of undercurrent or, or um, feeling in the background that these countries were still worried about someone coming over their borders. It could be it could be Germany, it could be anybody, um, but they still had a very real and palpable concern. And you know, we having been grown up, uh, having grown up in the United States, really don't know what that feels like. But you can hear it in people when you talk to them. And that was a, a really big concern and still is, and now even more so. But what has been interesting is not only um, was Dem Denmark one of the, the better countries in upholding their share of the commitment to NATO, which I think was one and a half percent of their, of their um, GDP, um, and, and they continue to do that, but they, they had fighter, um, uh, fighter pilots and, and jets uh, flying over Kosovo uh, when, I, when I was in uh, the mission in Copenhagen. And, and we actually had Serbs that demonstrated against through Molotov cocktails, did a million dollars worth of damage to the Copenhagen, Copenhagen embassy um, because of the war in Kosovo with the, um, the Marines trying to figure out how do we keep the, the embassy safe. So these are real world experiences that pale by comparison with what is happening in Ukraine today. But it, it gives me a little bit of a flavor, and I've had a little bit of an experience um, understanding um, how things can spiral out of control so quickly. Av, jump in. When you look at what is happening in Ukraine now and everything that led to it, what goes through your mind? I wish I could say I was uh, smart enough to recognize that this is what was going to happen. Uh, and I'll I'll be perfectly honest. Um, up until last Thursday, a week ago, last Thursday, when when he gave when Putin gave his rambling kind of hour long uh, diatribe on why he thought history um, pointed to um, his doing what he's doing as being the correct thing to do. Up until that point, I thought that this man was posturing. I thought that he understood clearly the the power that he held but he was going to use it not um, with violence, but just by taking advantage of the weaknesses of the West. And I think we have demonstrated in the West so many weaknesses that made him so sure that, that you know, he could have gotten away with quite a bit by just posturing. But when he did that diatribe, I watched it, I, you know, I, I watched it, read the, the transcript, 
And I said, this man really has drunk the Kool-Aid. This man believes everything he's saying. And when you see that in uh, an individual who's a former KGB agent who has been leading, uh, you know, uh, dictating uh, in Russia for the past 22 years, um, it was totally believable that he was going to use uh, force and that he is going to continue to use force. And now he is mixing that use. He is justifying that force with with not only this tirade that he he gave, you know, um, from the Kremlin, but he now, you know, reiterates that he thinks that, you know, he's saving Ukraine from Nazism, you know, believe it or not, and and that he is stopping genocide in uh, Ukraine. And the only genocide that he is stopping would be if he if he stops his own troops and brought them home, because there's no genocide in Ukraine other than the Russians killing the Ukrainians. So one of the things that I find interesting is that we talked about, you know, comparing the NATO war uh, against Serbia and airstrikes against Serbia yeah. for, you know, aggression um, and ethnic cleansing and genocide in Kosovo versus what NATO is doing now and what and, and what and what the United States is doing now. And it <clears throat> seems that just from, you know, the casual observer looking at this from a distance that our options are limited. And the reason that our options are limited is because Russia is a nuclear armed state and Putin has threatened, he's put his forces on his nuclear forces on alert, and he has threatened not so casually to use nuclear weapons. So it was the takeaway from this that uh, NATO and the United States will get involved militarily if the country that uh, the actions that we're seeking to stop uh, are being done by a country that's not nuclear armed. If you have nuclear weapons... Um, you can kind of be a bully in Europe and push your way around. Well, I think that's what Putin is revealing, is that the ugly truth is that nuclear warheads, um, mutually assured destruction is not mutually assured, um, meaning that it is only mutually assured if both sides agree that they won't use what they have to use. I mean, this man is uh, clearly uh, unafraid of, of, of making the threat that he's uh, elevating his his uh, nuclear arsenal's uh, alert system. Um, I would only counter to that by saying that we say nothing because we're always on alert and we should always be on alert and that there is really no difference between, you know, what level uh, of alertness we are at. And so, you know, my concern is, is that he um, is the kind of person, if you go back to, you know, um, some, I think it was in a book that he wrote, uh, a memoir he wrote, you know, he talks about as a boy, you know, uh, dealing with a cornered rat. And uh, uh, isn't that a wonderful comparison that, that he is making uh, to a, a cornered rat and how vicious that animal can become? Well, this is a, a, a human being who is uh, taking exactly those characteristics, which I don't think elevates him much above uh, the level of being that cornered rat. But he is, he is, um, he is saying that he will use nuclear weapons if forced, and um, that uh, has tremendously negative implications. And uh, we are trying to find out how we can uh, deal with him uh, without uh, going to that extreme. So I guess that begs the question, what more can the United States or NATO do? There are several things that are on the table as we speak. Yes. Um, 
banning the importation of Russian oil and, and natural gas. Establishing even even Nancy zone. Pelosi is calling yeah, right. for that. Right. A, a, yeah. As are Republicans. So so what so you've you've been in the State Department, you've been on the front lines, you've been you've been in Europe, you've been in Congress. Mm-hmm. What do you think? What options? Well, I think we I think obviously we should we should shut down the uh, Russian economy. Our big problem there is that Russia is uh, being driven into the arms of China, and uh, that creates this Cold War um, axis that uh, uh, you were talking about earlier, Of that is, is so evident and, and so um, uh, real that we are, are going to have to deal with. Um, but having said that, um, we, I think, are going to have to do everything we can to support Ukraine. Uh, They are showing incredible uh, bravery at this point. Um, They are not an insignificant community, Um, not to say that Serbia was, but, you know, this is 41 million people now down to 39 and a half or so because of the exodus. But these are people who are committed to saving their homeland. And there have been times, uh, time and again, that have demonstrated that when uh, people are defending their home turf, um, they have a, an added advantage that, uh, that sometimes uh, outweighs the numbers. Russia, should, Russia certainly knows that uh, story from Napoleon to Hitler to um, you know, uh, the current present day. But now they're the invader and they're dealing with a, with a very um, entrenched and, and committed uh, uh, Ukrainian uh, community that uh, I think is, is ready to, to go to the very last man. Uh, and woman to defend their country. So they need all the support that they can get. Th- that support has to be not just Tomahawk missiles and, and anti-tank, uh, anti-tank guns. They, they need to have um, the air power. They, they need to have the ability to uh, cover the air, uh, to keep the, um, the Russians um, away from their installations. And, uh, and they need the essentially the numbers on the ground to to fight off uh, the Russians as they approach yet today the third nuclear reactor that they will have under control if they succeed in in doing that. So these are these are um, you know military equipment, military uh, uh, ammunition and and arms and uh, um, devices and uh, and then there's the humanitarian aid there they need food they need you know not only energy for their their tanks and and uh, vehicles they need energy for their military and you know I want to just take one second to say I have been so impressed with Zelensky he, is, you know, when, when you first learned that uh, a comedic actor who, you know, whose best role was on some reality TV show in Ukraine um, was elected to president. Well, you know, in this age of celebrity uh, politicians, I'm not sure that I had that positive an image. Um, we've certainly had our own celebrity president and, and uh, that has not worked well for us. Um, but what he has been able to do and how he has stood up for his country and rallied his forces and you, you've seen the man mature right before your very eyes. And uh, I think that, that that tells me that there's still hope in the world for good leadership, although I'm not finding it anywhere else that I can see. Um, but Zelensky uh, has, has understood how to behave, how to rally his troops, how to um, work with his allies. Um, and I think that, that 
Ukraine has a fighting chance because this man has proven he's a fighter. If we look at uh, American policy uh, in this situation, and again, coordinating with all of the European and NATO allies, which is not easy to do, I guess the way I would sum it up, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is we are on a bit of a tightrope. We do not want to get involved directly militarily, but that's a bit of a slippery slope. When we talk about shipping arms to the Ukrainians through some of our NATO allies like Poland or Romania, those right. uh, countries on the border, or when we talk about potentially some defensive or even offensive cyber war operations that our, that our military may be engaging on um, to, in, to interrupt uh, some, of, some of the Russian operations, um, or when we talk about maybe shipping fighter jets uh, uh, to Ukraine or this talk of potentially doing a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I read one interesting quote in the New York Times article by an unnamed Defense Department source who said that Putin's definition of us getting involved militarily and our own definition of that are two different things. So there's a danger here that we could be uh, drawn into a wider conflict. So where would you draw the line? What we What's the line up to which we should be doing? And then what would be crossing that line uh, too much? Because one of the things, and one of the things we want to talk about is Putin has said, if the NATO countries or European countries do an embargo on any kind of shipments of oil or natural gas, he may look at that as an act of war as well. Well, and right there, I think we have to start out by saying, if we did nothing, that still could be determined by Putin because we haven't even talked about the cyber warfare space. And the cyber warfare space could be affecting, you know, the electricity in the hospitals of the surrounding NATO countries to Ukraine and people on life support systems could could perish because those systems go down. So there's already a potential through cyber warfare of impacting NATO nations without actually having boots on the ground and, and bullets flying in the air. That, uh, if you add to that the fact that, uh, as we were talking about before, I advocate wholeheartedly for the um, uh, cutting off of of all uh, oil uh, purchasing uh, that the United States has with Russia. It's only 10 percent, but um, it. Every every little bit counts. And and I and I, I think I concluded by saying that the big problem is that this is driving Russia into the arms of China and China is going to be um, in, in a big position to support the Russian uh, uh, bank accounts and, and things like that. And that's going to uh, keep Russia uh, in uh enough money to support their army in the Ukraine doing what they're doing there. So it's a it's a very complicated mess. It's a very uh, multifaceted um, situation. And if you throw into that, you know, the new Green Deal or the Green New Deal or you know, whatever you call it, I mean, what we're finding out is that um, our whole policy towards energy, towards national security, have not been intertwined sufficiently to be realistic about how to deal with certain circumstances that we're dealing with today. And so I feel, you know, we have to back off. We were energy independent um, before Biden took the office, uh, took uh, the White House. 
Um, we need to get back to that energy independence. That doesn't mean that we're, we're never going to address the, the uh, um, environmental issues that we are beginning to address. It just means that the timeline is going to spread out a little bit further. I think if, if you read the book by uh, Bjorn Lomborg, uh, False Alarm, um, he, I think, makes a very credible argument about how we can be environmentally responsible and yet not be so shrill and so um, um, dramatic in, in addressing it that uh, we are putting ourselves um, most importantly at risk to these kinds of, of uh, military uh, events that we're confronted with today. You're listening to Facing the Future. Uh, I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Communications Director of Harris and I are talking with former ambassador to Denmark, Richard Sweat, also a former congressman from New Hampshire. And we're discussing the implications of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We will be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Uh, Alf Harris and I are discussing the Russian invasion of Ukraine with former Congressman Richard Sweat, who also served as U.S. ambassador to Denmark, particularly relevant for this conversation since Denmark is a member of NATO. One of the major aspects of this is the impact on uh, energy policy throughout the world. I mean, Europe mm -hmm. really needs to rethink its dependent on, on Russian gas and oil. Uh, and, uh, you know, the United States is, uh, you know, this could be a spur to uh, some of the climate change uh, options that people have uh, talked about. Uh, I, I I wouldn't ever call that a, a silver lining of this, but, but I mean, people need to think seriously about the national security implications of how we do energy policy right now. And I'll just add uh, on the nuclear side of it, um, it's, you know, Europe is obviously much more dependent, and Ukraine in particular, on nuclear power uh, than the United States. But, but there is a, an element of national security policy to that, too, as we're seeing with the attack on the uh, nuclear power plant, which is mm -hmm. pretty damn scary. Uh, and, and, you know, to the extent that nuclear power plants can be vulnerable to terrorism, we, we think about them as being vulnerable to, you know, accidents and that sort of thing. But you throw into the uh, mix uh, being in the middle of a war zone. Uh, I, I just wonder when we think about the, the mix of gas uh, oil, uh, natural gas, um, uh, nuclear, uh, solar. Um, how might this reorganize, re you know, reprioritize our energy uh, sources? Well, first of all, Bob, I will tell you back in 2004, I wrote the energy policy for Joe Lieberman's presidential campaign. I didn't write it all by myself, I had experts um, joining me with that. And the approach that we took was exactly what any moderate would do is as a well-balanced approach that utilizes existing technology to implement as far into the future um, reduction in the use of fossil fuels without taking us entirely out of the, the mix, without um, making us dependent on other countries. When I was in Congress, I discovered that 30% of the electronics in the Patriot missile was not even manufactured here in the United States. It was manufactured by countries that could possibly be our adversary. And, you know, 
how in the world can you defend yourself utilize, utilizing a, a defense system that you can't even replenish um, once it's been it's been spent? So you know we are we have to be smarter. We have to be, um, I think. Uh, more comprehensive in how we look at um, what it is that we're trying to do, whether it's in energy, whether it's in defense, whether it's in you know um, economic policy, all of these things have to matter and they have to have an appropriate place at the table with the number one item being um, our own defense. So as we go through the energy situation, as I said, we were energy independent just a couple of years ago. We should be back in that position. Now, can we supply energy to Europe? I, I wanna supply energy to my friends, not to my enemies. And so that's where I think we should be really um, talking um, a, a good line with all of our European allies. Secondly, you know, when we look at our defense systems, who's making the components? Well, if they're being made in China, I don't think we want to have that be the case. And I think we want, if, if, if anything, we want uh, redundant systems, but probably, preferably, we want to have our own system. And these are the things that as we look like we're falling, slipping into the next Cold War again, we want to be looking at and making sure that we're protecting ourselves um, in the best way that we possibly can. So the, the good news is that we have the technology available to solve the energy crisis, to deal with our environmental global warming um, in hand right now. We aren't spending the money in a way that utilizes them to the extent that they should be. And that's why I refer you to um, Lomborg's book, uh, False Alarm. I think he has a balanced approach to this and should be seriously considered. With regard to the defending of our country and, uh, and our allies in NATO in particular, I think we have to be very careful because of the nuclear power that Russia um, possesses. But we are going to have to find a way to, um, to reckon. And I think, as I said earlier, right now, Ukraine is bravely stepping up and saying that they are going to defend their country, their homeland, and, and history shows that that has an important impact on, on uh, how those conflicts come out. But I think we've got to be able to supply them along with all of our NATO friends, you know, with the kinds of uh, uh, support that will enable them to um, defend their homeland. Um, that is going to be, I think, not a, a few days or few weeks war. That's going to be a few years war. And that's going to be a, a very difficult slog for the Ukrainians. Uh, and, uh, and they need all the support that they can get. So it sounds like, and you know, the couple of minutes that we have left for this segment, it sounds like if this is true, what you're saying, that there are going to be some major federal budgetary implications of this too, that we better get used to allocating our, our resources differently. What do you think the biggest impacts or hits to the federal budget are going to be from this? Well, I would say first and foremost, the cost of energy is going to skyrocket, um, at least initially. Um, and, and unless and until we um, work our production uh, around to uh, accommodate for, for more production uh, for use at home, uh, we will endure those, those uh, higher prices. 
um, that's going to have an impact on uh, the cost of uh, travel, the cost of, you know, um, uh, employment for uh, these particular um, country, uh, companies. So, you know, my feeling that's that's the first and foremost, uh, it's going to it's going to impact our food prices because um, we are going to have to you know pay those uh, higher costs for uh, transporting the food from the field to the to the plate. And, uh, you know, that's also going to be a, a part of the issue. Um, I think uh, the global market, uh, the finance system is, is going to take a hit because we've shut, you know, uh, Russia entirely out of that. And, and I don't know how that will trickle out and, and, and broaden uh, the impact in, you know, tr financial tr transactions between uh, us and other countries, um, particularly those that, that do do business with Russia. So, you know, I think that we're going to have to look at the, the SWIFT system and, and understand better what the implications are if we cut Russia entirely out of that system. Um, ultimately, our relationship with China is going to be, I think, the biggest impact on our economy because um, we are going to, if China stays fully engaged with Russia, uh, I think it's going to have repercussions. I think there are going to be political repercussions. And my sense is that uh, our trading with China is going to diminish. Um, that will uh, uh, take away from the table um, inexpensive goods that China is able to produce that, that we can't produce except at a higher price. So we'll, we'll, we're going to pay a price for that as well. So, you know, it, it has been um, proven historically that, that any time a, a country invades another country, um, that is a lead off into uh, a recessionary period globally. And uh, my sense is that uh, uh, unless we do something dramatic, uh, I don't see that changing. I mean, that's what these predictions are built on, is repetition of uh, expectations and, and reality. And so uh, I think we're hearing the economists talk about that being the possibility. I hate to leave it quite there. Um, we don't have to. That, I, I can I, I can leave a positive thought. And that is, you know, I would this, like country, to, yeah, this country needs to pull together. We need leadership like the Zelensky who understand that we have to work together to solve these problems. This isn't a matter of the progressives against the conservatives. This is a matter of Americans working with Americans. And we have proof, as I said throughout the program, that we can solve you know, climate change problems, that we can support someone who's willing to stand up to the Russians, that we are able to work together with our allies in NATO to do these kinds of things. Um, what we are lacking is the leadership that pulls everybody together and, and gets them, uh, you know, marching to the same drum or, or singing to the same tune or, you know, call it what you will. And, but, but we have an example of someone who is doing that in adverse cir circumstances. Uh, unlike the rat in the corner that Putin describes, I think Zelensky is, is dealing with his corner situation with, admir uh, with, uh, with admiration. I think that uh, he is, is uh, proving that he is uh, the kind of quality individual that we want as a leader. And uh, that's something that we can replicate uh, all over the world. Thank you for uh, uplifting us on the, the final note here, because things are things are Let's pretty call. depressing. But it, 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 <laughs> it is there are there are green shoots, so to speak, of yes. uh, 
things that uh, can come come out of this on a uh, on a positive note. But we, it looks like we've got a lot of uh, heavy slog ahead of us. Well, we can talk about that another time. But I'm building new economies in Africa, and I think uh, if you go to my website, you'll you'll have a a, a nice uh, image there that that shows that that we can we can make new markets where none exist. And what is that website for us? That's uh, climateprosperitysolutions.com. Look at the Malawi, right. the Malawi project. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. This is Bob Bixby, your host. Uh, Av Harris and I have been talking with former ambassador to uh, Denmark, uh, former congressman Richard Sweat from New Hampshire. And uh, we're going to be right back after these short messages to talk about another kind of dysfunction, but with far fewer consequences that's going on in Washington over the budget. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson are here with me to uh, turn our attention back to Washington and think about a looming uh, shutdown uh, if uh, Congress doesn't pass appropriations bills or some sort of new continuing resolution by March 11th. Uh, Tori, what's the what's the latest word from the Hill? Well, it looks like that they're going to squeak in uh, an omnibus bill before uh, under the deadline. Uh, so we'll, we will finally, uh, after several months into fiscal year 2022, finally have full year funding for all the agencies. Um, so uh, it, it looks good. Uh, we're still waiting for dotting the I's, crossing the T's, but it looks like they're going to make it. And uh, I, I know there are a lot of bells and whistles. I mean, attachments and things. And, mm -hmm. you know, you kind of think of this as the... Uh, the last uh, train leaving the station or the plane leaving and everybody wants to get on. And so, I mean, there are things like a, a more COVID relief and certainly a, uh, a new package of aid for Ukraine. How did those things factor in? Yeah, I, I definitely think uh, the defense budget uh, is going to look markedly different than what uh, appropriators agreed to a couple of months ago. If you recall, uh, you know, around Christmas time, they agreed to sort of top line spending levels for defense and non-defense. And I think the war with Ukraine sort of threw that playbook out the window. So it would not surprise me. You know, Biden's original budget uh, requested $715 billion for the defense budget. The tentative agreement uh, a few months ago was 740. And I think even we're going to go beyond that, obviously, with a Ukraine aid package. Um, it originally started at about six billion dollars for Ukraine. Uh, then it went to 10 and now it's at 12. Um, so we'll, we'll definitely see a, a much larger defense budget than orig originally anticipated. Um, they're still you know, negotiating COVID relief. Uh, the, the president and his administration, they've requested about $22 billion in, in additional COVID relief, both for things like uh, therapeutics and testing here in the United States, but also money for the State Department and USAID to vaccinate po populations around the world. Um, Republicans are hoping to scale that back to about $15 billion, and they're also hoping to offset it by rescinding um, some COVID money from prior legislation that hasn't been spent. So Republicans are insisting that any kind of new COVID relief be offset. And they're probably going to win. <laughs> so, But they, they keep backing themselves into corners, though, you know, painting themselves into corners by trying to jam the Senate. And, you know, the Senate's going to go through their amendment dance again. So Democrats need to make sure that everybody's in attendance on Friday 
so that they can beat back any Republican amendments about, you know, vaccine mandates, et cetera. I mean, we're going to go through this kabuki dance every I mean, even if that even if they were to do like a short term, like three, four day, five day CR, you know, just to get the, the, the ledge text done, for example. Um, I'm sure that Mike Lee and, and everybody would make them go through this dance on just a you know five day CR. You're able to say about your opponent, you know, they voted X times to preserve Biden's vaccine mandate. You know, the Republicans will fundraise off of it and then it becomes campaign ad fodder against Democrats. So fine, you know, Biden's going to ramp up domestic energy production to try and keep the price of gasoline from, you know, blowing up around the globe. Um, and he's doing it at the request of you know Republicans, and they're still going to hammer him over inflation. Yeah, well, and somewhere back in the uh, in the background, somewhere there should be a Biden budget coming along at some point. Uh, <laughs> for we're in fiscal year 2022, as you said, where we haven't uh, yet uh, passed all the bills for this. But at this point, uh, we're used to having fiscal year. You know, the next fiscal year. Uh, budget uh, being considered, and we we haven't had a budget yet from the Biden administration. What is the uh, thinking on that? Well, normally by this time, we've already seen a baseline budget for fiscal 23 from the Congressional Budget Office, and we've also normally seen the president's proposal for fiscal 2023. Neither of those have happened yet because we haven't finished our homework for fiscal 2022. Uh, I would, under normal circumstances, expect to see a president's budget within two or three weeks after we finish this this fiscal 22 appropriations. But with everything that's going on in Ukraine, you have to wonder if maybe they're rethinking their defense budget proposal for 2023, because I don't think anybody believes that this Ukraine situation is going to resolve itself within the next couple of weeks from everything that you hear on television these days. This is going to be a long slog. I mean, you know, six months to a year. Um, So you have to think, wonder whether or not the, the Biden administration is rethinking their fiscal 23 defense budget. And if so, that may delay the budget a little bit further. I don't know, but that's what I'm wondering. Well, turning our attention to the economy, um, Steve, the last jobs report was much more uh, buoyant than people thought. Of course, you know, there's just a lot of noise in the in the data and uh, a lot of the Economic numbers and jobs numbers that uh, come out are hard to in- interpret, but but this one was really a big miss on the on the high side. Everybody was thinking it would be a little bit lower, and it came in much higher. So, what does that tell us about the economy, and uh, uh, you know where we are right now, and what might be happening in the in the next few months? Well, yeah, the jobs report from uh, last week was on the high side. There were six hundred and seventy eight thousand payroll jobs, which was good news. Um, so yeah, you're right. The, the monthly numbers fluctuate, you know, from month to month, and it's it's hard to to know exactly, you know, whether a, a one month uh, number is is part of a trend. And I would point out that uh, we're still down in terms of total employment, in terms of employment population, in terms of labor force. We're still below the peak uh, of February of, of 2020 prior to the to the COVID pandemic. So while yeah, we've seen strong job growth in, in recent months we're still not quite back to where we were. Um, one of the things that in the jobs report that caught my eye is, is the data on, uh, on wages. And I noticed that uh, some of the highest wage growth, hourly wage growth was in 
the service sector. Uh, leisure hospitality, for example, uh, year over year, wage growth was uh, over 10%. In fact, among a lot of the service sectors, uh, wages were far, even, even though inflation is now running you know, over 7%, we're seeing wage gains above the inflation rate. And that, that brought to mind, there's an economist, William Bommel, who pointed out the difference between the goods producing industry and the service producing industry. And, and he noted that you know, if you're producing goods and you have productivity gains, you, you can simply have one worker producing more goods and he can earn higher wages because he's more productive. Uh, but in the service sector, you have a, a difficulty because, for example, if you're a barber, you know, on average, it takes you 20 minutes to cut somebody's hair. So, you know, you got one head of hair, you got one barber, and it takes 20 minutes. So if you start seeing wage gains in the, uh, in the service sector, it's not because of productivity growth. It's because wages in the service sector have to be competitive with wages elsewhere in the economy. In other words, if, if wages, if you have a, a high-income country or a high-income state and wages rise in the, in the goods sector because of productivity, those workers can earn higher wages. But if you want somebody to continue cutting hair and he doesn't earn higher wages, he's going to find something else to do. And so essentially what Bama pointed out is if you look at, you know, how long it takes for, you know, four musicians to play, you know, a, a string quartet to play a symphony, you know, take them 20 minutes. It takes 20 minutes to cut somebody's hair. Uh, you know, all of the service sector jobs, it takes, you know, a first grade teacher 10 minutes to read green eggs and ham or whatever it is. But, you know, you can only on the service sector, you can only do so many things so fast because it's one person providing a individual service. And as wages start rising in the service sector, those tend to get baked into the cake. I mean, the service sector is about two thirds of, of, of consumption in the economy. Goods are about a third and services are about two thirds. So, you know, when wages rise in the service sector, that tends to be because they're trying to keep workers up with inflation. They're trying to keep workers up with the productivity growth in, this, in the goods sector. And that tends to, to stay around. And, and if we're seeing wage gains in the service sector, that's going to show up in higher prices. And those prices are unlikely. It's hard to take wage gains back. Uh, so the wages get built into the prices and those prices are here to stay. So it's, it's you know, in my mind, it's perhaps not good news on the inflation front uh, as a result of, of rising wages. Is it, <clears throat> is it a possibility that the service jobs are going up because that was the sector that was hurt so so hard by the pandemic and people just dropped out of that workforce. And so there's a lot more competition for jobs there. Well, I mean, you, you saw an interesting phenomenon a year ago, or I guess in 2020, where a lot of the jobs in the service sector went away because of the pandemic shutdowns. They closed the restaurants and they closed, you know, the, the, the leisure hospitality. Disney World was closed. And so... Those barbershops, the, the barbershops and the barbershops were all closed. Yeah. So you actually saw average wages go up because the low wage workers had dropped out of the labor force and they weren't being counted. And then when they all came back, wages went down a bit. But what you're seeing now is wages going up because the low wage workers are earning higher wages. And, you know, I think that, you know, that's that's going to, to, to show up as a, as a more permanent uh, price effect. And, you know, I, 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 again, I, I still think that that's, that's a, 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 an ominous sign uh, for, 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 for inflation prospects. 
Yeah. I mean, the thing that uh, the Fed always worries about is expectations getting uh, anchored around uh, rising uh, inflation. Uh, and, yeah, you know, I mean, so the, uh, the, fi- the financial markets are still behind the curve, I think. I mean, in, you know, 10 year treasuries had, had gone up to about 2%, and now they're back down to 1.8. So the financial markets are not yet convinced inflation is here to stay because they're earning negative returns on, on their bonds. But you know, it may take them a little longer to come around, perhaps, than than the rest of the economy. The real well, economy. A, compl- is- a complicating matter, I guess, on the bonds is, uh, yeah, rates were up up to around two percent on the ten year to, to drop back down, probably because of the situation in Ukraine. I, I guess is the the flight to safety, yep. Uh, yep. and uh, you know, people just you know. So the, the risk I, I guess- element, yeah, the risk element is a big big component there. That's true. Yeah. So, well, um, Tori, uh, we're going to wrap up this segment, but have any final words on uh, the economy or anything profound? Anything profound? Uh, I'm just hoping that things get better and things settle down. I think we know that that's that's, you know, false hope. But uh, I, I hope things you know settle down and we're in for a nice covid free summer. Yeah, well, uh, that uh, that that is a wish we can we can all share. That's all the time we have uh, for this week. This is your host, Bob Bixby. Tune in next week when I will be back with another edition of Facing the Future. 